Plum Creek, it is so sweet to have a full house again. Forget you, 2020. So nice. I love this. Making my heart happy. Hey, I'm going to jump in pretty quick this morning because I got a lot on my heart and my mind, but I, I do want to remind us of this. I reminded myself this this morning. Lamentations chapter three says a beautiful thing about us and more importantly about God. It says the steadfast love of God never ceases. The steadfast love, it never stops. And it says this, this is really cool. It says his mercies are new every morning. And I don't know about you, I need it every morning. Like you may be better than that, I'm not. I need it every morning. It says his mercies are new every morning. And then it says this, and we were just singing his worth to this. It says, great is your faithfulness. And that's my story, that's my song. We were singing it, that's my song. For all the craziness of my story, God's just been faithful. Even when I've been faithless, like we talked about last week, God's just been faithful. He can't disown, it's just because it's, it's of who he is. It's not what he does for us, it's just who he is. And so I hope you sit under the beautiful weight of God's mercy today. I hope that we are blanketed with it today. And I hope that God just does something so special in these next few minutes. In fact, we're gonna stop right now before I start to preach and we're just gonna ask God to meet with us in such a precious and such a special way. So Jesus, in these next few minutes, would you be glorified? Holy Spirit, in these next few minutes, would you be so revered and so honored? We need your help, Holy Spirit. We need your comfort, Holy Spirit. We need your encouragement, Holy Spirit. We need your counsel. We need your conviction. But more than anything, we just need to keep letting you teach us who Jesus is and drawing us back to him. Jesus, all we're about to do in these next few minutes is for your name and your glory. So we pray it in your name. And everybody said, amen. amen. I love you all. We are in, uh, let's see, week two of my mini series, The Table, where two of my passions are colliding food and Jesus. And I do not apologize for that. Um, there are two uh, very, uh, two, not two, three, four maybe, sacred days in the Brugman household. And one of them for us might not be your guys' as I know all your families have different sacred days. But one of them for us in the Brugman household, it comes around this time in spring towards the end of school. And here's why it's sacred to us. It's, it's this thing called field day. You guys ever heard of it? Yeah, this is beautiful for us. It's, it's time. When they have it at the end of school, the, the students just need it. And dear God, the teachers need field day more than the students need field day. You know what I'm talking about? Teachers will amen that with one tear coming down their right eye. But we love it, and here's why. Field day, for the few of you that don't know what it is, it's this day where all academia is just shut down and put on pause. And this is a beautiful thing for the Brugman family because for all of our strengths, academia is not one of them. And I will leave it at that because I'm in a good mood. Um, <laughs> it's not. And, and here's what the Brugmans are pretty, pretty, pretty good at. We're competitors. We love to compete, and so field day was just like made for us, and it's this day where these kids play these cute little like pseudo-Olympic games, you know, and uh, if you win, you get the blue star, if you get second, you get the green star, then you get third, you get the yellow star, fourth, the orange star, fifth, the, uh-oh, the red star for the uh, uncoveted last place, right, and they just go out, and there was this one year about four years ago where our, all four, or th all three of my four kids, excuse me, were... Um, all in the same elementary school for just one year, all three of them. So my oldest son was in fifth grade, my daughter was in third grade, and my uh, middle son, Ben, was in kindergarten. And the kindergartners would go first in field day uh, in, in the morning, and then we'd go to lunch together, and then the older kids would go in the afternoon. And my son, Ben, is an amazing human being. Of my four kids, he's my favorite by far. And so, <laughs> ah, I just said what I was thinking. 
I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to, uh, my bad. No, I'm kidding. We love them all. He's my favorite though. Anyways, moving on, <laughs> moving on. Uh, he's amazing. I could just go down a litany of things that he is amazing at, but one thing that is probably not highest on his skill set list is athletics. And so he is losing at virtually every event, just one thing after another, which is a problem when your father is about as competitive as it gets, right? But I'm the pastor in Littleton for like 15 years and everyone at this school pretty much knows I'm one of the local pastors there, so I can't act competitive, right? Like I'm just like, they're up like, like, oh man, isn't this cool watching all the kids? I'm like, eh, I don't care who wins. It's just, you know, just grateful to see all of God's creation out here running around in the beautiful bounty and secretly I'm like, I wanna win. Like, I'm on blue stars today. This is Brugman Day, right? But Ben's winning nothing. And at one point, he's doing a long distance run, and I'm talking to his PE teacher. We're just small talking, and I just cut her off, and I go, hey, Ben, I love you, buddy. This is not your fault. He's just getting lapped. I go, this is my fault. This is a genetic issue. You just keep having fun. But here's the deal. Nobody was worse at field day than Ben. Nobody was having more fun at field day than Ben. I, I love you, and he's just waddling, getting lapped by all the girls, and he's just like, hey, Dad, right? Like, there's popsicles today, right? Having a blast. Now, he, he, here's, what's, here, here's why. He hadn't lived enough as a kindergartner yet to, to understand our cultural caste system and what's been ingrained into us consciously and subconsciously since birth. He hasn't understand yet that medals matter to us. He didn't understand that we are a blue star culture. He didn't understand that where you finish in life matters to all of us so much. He was just out in that field to have a blast. And you know what I was sitting there thinking? You got all these red stars, but I have a hunch you may have won today. You may have won the day because he was there for God's original intent for us in this field called earth, which was to enjoy it. God didn't get in the way of that. Sin got in the way of that. You understand that? Like we were created to just enjoy it and it wasn't about merit and it wasn't about stars. And it wasn't about competition. It used to, there, in, 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 a, in a perfect world which will be restored to us, it was about this beautiful, unified, symphony-like approach to tending this world where we all don't compare, we don't compete, we just get along and we celebrate each other in all of the various gifts and talents we have. Doesn't that sound nice? Jesus, come back and get us. Let's go. Like, I can't wait for that. But in the meantime, we got a field day mindset. Now, here's the good thing for me. In the afternoon, my fifth grader and my, and my, my third grade daughter were going, and my fifth grader was held back a year. So he was bigger and faster than everyone. And I'm like, it's gonna be a good afternoon. <laughs> Except a couple days before that, he went to the doctor and got a few pharmaceuticals. And one of the side effects of those was uh, loose bells. And so he made it through half of one race before the medicine apparently kicked in. And he sprinted right home and... That was his field day. So I'm 0 for 2 now on my blue stars, but I had one saving grace left, the best athlete in our family, my sweet Jane. She is a boss lady, and she is the best athlete in our family by far, and she doesn't play one sport and could care less because God hates me. <laughs> I promise. Like, like, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, you are such a gifted athlete, you could care less. She doesn't play any of it, anything. But I knew on field day she was gonna, she's competitive though, and I knew she was just gonna win everything because I had watched her for several years now, win everything. And so I just kind of secretly have my phone out and I'm filming her and she's just blue star, blue star, blue star. And in fact, there was one sprint that I filmed. Why don't you guys go ahead and watch this? My girl, Janie Delaney, about to show up and show off in a field day race. Girl's been dominating thus far. Couldn't be more proud of her. She's uber competitive like her mother. 
uber sweet and gracious like her father. Girl's about to throw down. I want you to watch this stride. I want you to watch her speed, her burst. It's gonna be incredible. Here we go. Go. Come on, girl. Go, girl. Go, girl. Go, girl. That's what we call first place. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yep. Not here to have fun. We're here to win. <laughs> We're not here to have fun. We're here to win, right? I hear Ricky Bobby in my head right now. If you ain't first, you're last, right? That's, that's the field day mentality that, and, and none of us did this on purpose. We were born into this cultural caste system where it's about performance. It's about earning. It's about striving. And unfortunately, with all of that, we tend to look instead of uh, uh, vertically to God, we tend to do our comparison stuff horizontally towards each other. Hey, could I see the back of your ribbon? I want to see how many stars you have. I want to see what's, what, what's going on here, right? And it's like, it's like it's adventures in missing the point. And so I'm going to do a message in week two of the table series that I'm going to title, Don't Miss the Meal, and I'm going to subtitle it, Field Day. Because we're going to look at a, a really famous passage of scripture that's my favorite uh, parable in all of scriptures. I love talking about this. It's Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. I owe you guys, especially those of you newer to church, I owe you guys some context so we get the fullness of what's happening in this made-up story that Jesus gave us. Although it was made up, parables of Jesus were completely and full of truth. Completely true. And what Jesus is doing when he's telling the parable of the prodigal son is he's answering a question in, in response to this group of people called the Pharisees. And Jesus and the Pharisees had an incredibly contentious relationship because their hearts were so far from God, and yet at the same time, they were the religious rulers of the day. That's a problem when the leaders of the temple and the leaders of the church are doing a great thing, but their hearts are really far from God. It starts to cause problems, uh, but Jesus just comes. And so he, you, you, all throughout the gospels, you see these incredibly harsh confrontations because they're constantly trying to trap Jesus. So eventually they can crucify Jesus because Jesus is interrupting their field day. And the Pharisees were the blue star people of field day. They outperformed everybody in their culture. They outran everybody. They had all of the blue stars on the back of their proverbial ribbon. And, and so when they're asking Jesus this particular question, he gets serious this time because he doesn't tell one parable. He tells three. He's serious when he's telling three. And it's his passion for lost people because they were questioning him on why he was eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. Remember we talked about a meeting with Matthew last week? They didn't like that at all. Because rabbis don't associate with the scum of the earth like that, right? And so they were asking him that. And so he says, let me tell you my heart for lost people. And the first parable he tells is a parable of the lost sheep, right? Let me just re re review real quick. I'm going to, uh, Jesus says, if there's a really good shepherd and 99 of the 100 sheep are safe and sound in the pen, but one goes missing, do you know what a good shepherd does? He leaves the ones that are safe and sound in the pen and he goes out into the wilderness looking for the lost sheep. And he's probably thinking, okay, I don't think I drove the point home enough as to why I eat with these kind of people, why I love to hang with these kind of people, why I love to sit at the table with these kind of people. So he tells another story and he digs deeper. He tells the story of a little old lady who loses her most precious commodity, this very valuable coin, and she searches for it night and all night, and then eventually she finds it, and it says when the coin's found, there's just this huge celebration because something was lost, and now it's found. 
And then he gets to the crescendo where he's gonna like swing for the fences on this one. Like if they haven't got it yet, I hope they get it after this. And this is where we get the parable of the prodigal son. But the parable of the prodigal son is a really poor title by whoever was uh, translating our modern Bibles. Because it should not be called the parable of the prodigal son. It should be called the parable of the prodigal's sons. Because there's two sons that are represented in this story. And one is, yes, the little brother. And that's usually when we come to church and hear these messages, that's who we hear about, right? We romanticize the little brother because at some point in all our lives, like him, Jesus came and when we least deserved it, bestowed grace on us and we've never been the same since. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's got like Hollywood type material in it, right? Let me just review it for you. This young son comes from a very wealthy father, a very wealthy household. He, he uh, feels very um, proud. You know what, young people, you know, think they know everything at some point. So it's like, dad, can I have my inheritance? I can spend it better than you're having me spend it. The dad actually says, okay. And he gives him the money and he goes off and the Bible says he has a blast for a while. And, and you know why? The Bible says this in the Old Testament. It says sin is fun for a season, but in the end it leads to death. That's the great deception of sin is for a while it'll tell you like, oh, this isn't bad. This is good. This is worth it. This is going well. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's death in it and you're far gone. And at some point he's, he's painting the proverbial sin town red. He's having a blast in it that at one point it says he squandered all his wealth. And now all of a sudden he has no job. It's kind of like, you know, uh, dumb and dumber. We have no jobs. We have no food. Our pets' heads are falling off, right? Remember that line? Is that just me? Okay, some of you get it. Some of you are my people. He's in that mode. He's living the worst place you could live as a first century Jew. He's living with the pigs, right? He's living with the pigs. And the Bible says he's not only living with the pigs, he's eating their leftovers. He's eating the pods from the pigs. That's how bad it's gotten. He's just self-destructed. And here's what he represents in this story. There's so many layers to it, but he represents all of us who at one time or another in life have just self-destructed because of our poor choices, right? He's self-destructed. You know what else he represents? This is important too. Jesus is using him to represent the tax collectors and the prostitutes that he would eat with. You know what else he's using the younger brother to represent? The Gentiles. Because the Gentiles had for millennia rebelled, gone in their own way, and had turned to false gods and were so far from the one true God, Yahweh. And Jesus comes down and says, I'm gonna bring these Gentiles home back to the one true God. And how can I not bring them home if I don't first eat with them? If I'm not willing to eat with them, where are they ever gonna trust that I would wanna bring them back into eternity with me? So that younger brother represents the Gentiles and the Jews by this point had so much visceral anger and judgment and hostility. And here's the word for the day, self-righteousness towards this people group. And this is the younger brother and he ends the story where the younger brother comes home. He does the walk of shame, but the father's having none of it. It says, well, he was a long way off. I love that. That's another sermon for another day. Well, he was a long way off. The father ran to him and hugged him. I think of Paul in Romans saying, well, we were yet sinners. Christ ran to us at the height of our rebellion and hugged us. And it doesn't just say he hugged him. He put a robe on him, which is a symbol of clothing your shame and clothing your righteousness. He doesn't make him sit in a divine timeout first before he goes, are you worthy of the robe? No, put a robe on, no more shame. You've lived in it enough. Then he puts a ring on his finger, which was a, it was a, a family crest. It was a sign saying, this is my son with whom I am well. I'm not ashamed to be associated with the rebel of the town who left the rich father's house and squandered everything. Put a ring on his finger. 
And then he says, put sandals on his feet because we're gonna get back to living the way we once lived. And then he says, quick, and I love this part. This is where we get into the food part of it. He goes, quick, kill the fattest calf we got. Like we're having ribeye tonight, right? It's ribeye, like the fattest calf we got. Crack open a bottle of wine. In fact, do this, it's time. Get Get the 32 BC Merlot out from, yep, get that out. I've been waiting a long time for this. It's time, it's on. And I want you to do this, uh, hire, the, hire a DJ, we're gonna dance all night, right? And if I'm writing this story, because I know the Hollywood template, I write this story and I start rolling the credits right after that, right? And you roll the credits and the, you, you know I would put some slow motion B-roll behind the credits of cutting into steak, up close shot where there's just juices flowing out of the steak with the knife and they're taking a swig of the non-alcoholic uh, wine. They're just taking a swig out of it. You know, the DJ slow-mo. And everyone's like throwing your hands in the air, like all of that stuff. That's where I end the story. You know why? Because I'm 24 now years removed from that moment. So it's easy to romanticize that. Can I be honest with you? Just honest. I'm, this is just my story, but I have a hunch. A bunch of you would say you're sitting in my spot as well. My biggest proclivity to miss the meal that God has for me in this life is not because of self-destructive behavior anymore. I still do some self-destructive stuff. Make no mistake about it. But the real like trying to destroy my life days have, have been far in the rearview mirror. I'm not looking to drink myself to death these days. I'm not philandering around with women. I'm not stealing money or doing whatever people are doing to destroy themselves by God's grace. That's not the thing. So it's easy to look at that season where I was doing all that stuff and romanticize it now and go roll the credits. But see, here's the deal. There's a whole nother people group that God deeply loves called Israel. And that's what the older brother represents. It's Israel, and then more specifically, who he's addressing the question to is who? The Pharisees, right? And here's the deal. You can read all about it in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where God speaks to, there's gonna be a season where Israel is profoundly jealous when I start to invite Gentiles in because they had put enmity against each other. They had played the field day game. Our ribbons are better than your ribbons. And the older brother represents Israel because Israel was what? The first seed of redemption, It was the first bloodline and nation that God would use as a seed, not to make them the best, just the first. But you know what the Bible says about being first and last? It crushes our field day mentality. It says the first shall be last. This is Jesus who said this. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You ever read that in the Bible and you act like because we're godly? Oh, that's beautiful. But secretly you're really offended by that. We were not born into a culture that in any way thinks that. So you read, this is from our creator though. He says that someday the first are gonna be last and the last are gonna be first. What's Jesus saying? He going, you've missed the point of life. It's not about blue stars. And if you make it your whole life about blue stars, then guess what? When you get to heaven and the first are last and the last are first, you're gonna miss the meal. You may be there physically, but your heart's not gonna be there, Right? And I don't want that for anyone. And so Jesus, well, it looks like he's just, just punching the Pharisee in this story. He actually is doing it because he deeply loves him and doesn't want him to miss one more wheel, meal because of his attitude, because of the posture of their heart. And so here's the deal. Here's what's real cool. The Bible, when it's done saying we're going to have a party, the party starts. And what it tells us next is so important. It tells us that there's like one person missing. And you remember the parable that he told first? The parable of the lost sheep? We always think about the self-destructive person out there. Those people out there, the lost sheep. But you know what's interesting in this story? You know who the lost sheep is? The older brother, the Pharisees, Israel. 
because they had missed the heart of why God throws meals for us in the first place, why he wants to dine with us in the first place, why he wants to throw a party from us for us in the first place, right? So I picture this, just humor me for a minute because the Bible doesn't say this, but let's pretend that the father in that story invited not, uh, 100 people to that, to that feast. And, and early in the feast while everyone's having a blast and he's hosting, something's off in his heart as a father. Come on, dads, you know that. He's like, someone's missing. He starts counting. He realizes there's only 99 here. I invited 100. Who's missing? And they're like, your, your older brother, your, your son, your oldest son. He's not here. He goes, guys, I love you. Keep partying. Have a blast. I got to go. Why? He leaves the 99 to go and find the one. And I think it's amazing that the kid who never left home was the one that needed to go and be found, not the kid who just got back home. And yet most of our energy, and oftentimes if we're not honest, a lot of our judgments are for all the people we're kind of hoping they come home. And yet at the same time, you can be in church, you can be tithing, you can be giving, you can be serving, you can be the best dressed person in here and your heart can be really far from God. And Jesus isn't having it. Not because he's mad at you, because he loves you so much. And so we pick up in uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 25. It says, meanwhile, while the older son was where? In the field. See what I did there? Let the field day games commence. Here we go. <laughs> when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Uh-oh, Pharisees don't like music and dancing unless the music and dancing is in their honor. I'll move on. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. It's almost like the servant goes, isn't this awesome news? Now listen to the older brother. Listen to the Pharisee's heart for all those prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners that Jesus keeps eating with. The older brother became angry. And he what? He refused to go in. Look at, look at the one who's missing the meal here. It's not the self-destructive person. It's the self-righteous person. <laughs> Has you not seen how many blue stars I have? <laughs> right? I'm not going in there. I should be on the podium in there. He's got the red star kid on the podium in there. This makes no sense. But can I remind us? The gospel makes no sense to the human, fallen, broken, intellect. It is completely upside down and completely subverts every system of this world, including field day. He refused to go in. Now listen to this. This is crazy. So the father goes out and pleads with him, which blows my mind. If I'm the dad, thank God I'm not God because my heart's not good enough. If I'm the dad, I go out there and go, oh, you want to miss my party? You know, I threw this party. You know, this is my house. You know, this is my money. I gave you two thirds because the older son in that culture always got two thirds of the inheritance and the rest of the kids split the rest. Talk about a tough day after that, right? Like some fight. But here's why. Because they had the burden to take care of the family if the father ever died. So it's actually a really beautiful thing. You know how much money that kid had? You know how many parties and soirees he could have thrown in his own honor with his own podiums, with his own friends if he really wanted to? But all he really wanted was what you and I at the end of the day, what we really want because we were made for this. You just want the father's approval. And that is a good thing, wanting the father's approval. It's not that that's bad. What's bad is the way he's going about trying to get it. Dad, look at my blue stars. Dad, I'm running so fast for you. I'm working so hard for you. I want so badly your approval. And God's sitting there thinking, the only thing I want from you, son, is to eat with you and party with you. Because the, the party's in God's presence, not the meat or the merlot or the music. All of that actually will become an offense to us when God's not at the center of it. Whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, and all you do, do it all what? For the glory of God. The whole point is to be with 
God. And so he pleads with him, and the son answers him, look, Father, and come on, let's be honest, don't, don't you kind of resonate with the son here? I know I sure do. But he answered him, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I don't like that term, right? I, I think that broke the father's heart. I never want one of my kids to ever think they're my slave. Ever. That's gross, right? They're my, they're my kids. He goes, I've been slaving for you all these years and never disobeyed your orders. Translation, I am, an, I am a Hall of Fame level field there, dad, and you're throwing a party for the knucklehead in there. You never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. And guys, I get that. I, I understand that. He says, oh, my son. I love that he's calling the Pharisees here son. Because all you see in his conversations with Pharisees is really harsh language, but God is reminding us in this point, he deeply loves Pharisees. And can I stop and tell you why that's really good news? And this is gonna be bad news, but I'm gonna end with really good news. So stick with me, will you? I'm gonna be pastoral for a moment, moment. Every one of us in the sound of my voice here and watching at home, every single one of us still has some Pharisee in us. You understand that? And I've been praying all week that by God's sweet mercy and grace, that he would just, with gentleness and tenderness of a father, like he does in the backyard here, he would come to Plum Creek and give us all a big ferrisectomy. That's what I've been praying for. <laughs> just get into the deepest parts and do what you gotta do. I don't mind it. Put me out first, that would be nice, but just we're gonna have a ferrisectomy today. <laughs> like that's my prayer. Why? Not because I, I love this place, I, I'm, I'm, but there's a Pharisee in all of us. And listen to me, this is why it's so important. Self-righteousness, which is the mark of a Pharisee, is the last and greatest foe of the human heart to be conquered. It is the deepest, least visible, most toxic sin that you and I will ever have to confront and ever have to steward. And this is what is happening here. The father says this, my son, listen to the heart of God for the Pharisees. You are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. You've missed the point he's saying. Because see, here's the problem. Here, here's the sweet spot in life, if I can generalize it for you for a minute. The sweet spot in life is when you finally understand that God owes you nothing and yet wants to give you everything. He owed that older son nothing and he looks at him and says, everything I have is yours. That's when real praise starts to happen in your heart. That's when real gratitude starts to spring up in your heart. When, when you know that God owes you nothing and yet it's his heart to give you everything. And not just on your best day of holy living, on your worst days, your most broken moments, God will hunt you down, find you and say, hey, I'm still with you. Everything that I have is yours. He's trying to, to soften the hearts of these Pharisees. He says, but we had to celebrate, son, just so you know my heart, we had to celebrate because your brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so I wanna do this for just a few minutes. I wanna give us a picture of the self-righteous heart. I wanna give us a picture of the Pharisee and all of us. There's this uh, ancient um, trade that uh, still happens, but we don't talk about it much for a lot of different reasons. But there is this trade called uh, the silversmith and the, they were all over every town and every region on the globe in the ancient world because all currency was still 
gold and it was still silver. It wasn't paper, it wasn't done online, right? It was still silver and gold. Plus you had to make swords for battle. You had to make crowns for kings. You had to make currency for all the countries, right? And so silversmiths was an incredibly important trade. And what silversmiths would do, I'll give you the cliff notes of their ancient process, but what they would do is before they would fashion them into swords, any silver, any gold, before they would turn them into currency, before they would make a king's crown or whatever, here's what they had to do. They had to purify the silver or gold first. And what that meant was they were gonna extract from all of those precious metals, they were gonna extract any toxins that were left in them so they could make the best vessel possible, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? And so what they would do, in fact, let me, let me, let me say this, this is important. There's this really beautiful poetic moment where one of the Old Testament prophets is praying for a very stiff-necked Israel. That was in captivity at the time because of their rebellion. They were far from God. And do you know what the prayer of the prophet says is? He said, God, would you sweep away our dross? Because dross is the name of the impurities in gold and silver. They're the toxins deep down in there that keep a vessel, that keep a product from being everything that it was supposed to be. And so what they do is they get this great big bowl of boiling water, like massive and they get, they get it to where it's boiling, and then they take the gold or the silver or whatever they're using, and they dump it in there. And what happens is all of the dross, the first round, there's three rounds, all the dross, and it, there's tons of it in the beginning. It surfaces to the top, and it's kind of discolored, so you know that it's the dross, and they just look, and it's huge, and it's visible, and it's everywhere, and they just sweep it away. They're the outer impurities. I think of this when I think of Joss. I think this is important. I think of like the younger brother. He was like first level Dross. And this is why the father is so tender when he comes home. He's already been punished enough. See, when you're in self-destructive mode, we've all probably to some degree been there. You don't need God to come down and get harsh with you. The world is, we, we reap what we sow, Right? At some point when you're in self-destructive mode, come on, you don't need any more people pouncing on you. Life's doing that enough, more or less the creator of life. And God knows the human heart. And so when there's tons of dry, like look how tender God is, for example, with the lady caught in adultery compared to the Pharisees. Caught in nothing. <laughs> Why is he so tender with her and so harsh with them? Because her dross is everywhere. The whole town knows it. She just screwed up her life and now she's about to get stoned to death but Jesus steps in front of her and he defends her publicly and says, let you without sin cast the first stone. He starts addressing the Pharisees. So he's being harsh with the guys with stones in their hands and he's being tender with the lady who just tried to destroy her life. Why? The dross is everywhere, right? He's not gonna pile on. So all the people that were trying to pile on literally with their rocks to stone her, he says no, and they start to walk away. He's so tender with them. He's so tender when the tax collectors and the pride, he's like, let's go have dinner together. Hey, come and follow me. And then he gets to the Pharisees like, you're whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones in them, right? Like he just, and I could go down the list. Matthew 23, go and read it. It talks about the seven woes. That's like harsh language. And yet they're the heroes of the day in their culture. And then he's so harsh, why? Because the toxins in their heart, are so much deeper and so much more toxic. And here's what's so crazy, way less visible. And so the, the silversmith would dump the, 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 the gold or the silver in for the second time and much less dross would come up, but it would be much more toxic. And they would sweep it away. They would take it out, much like God does with us in this process of sanctification, and they would let it breathe. They'd put more kindling on the fire. They'd put it back in. 
And now it was as hot as it was gonna get. Now, here's, here, here's what we learned about that ancient trade. Hardly any dross comes to the surface the third time. But you know what that dross is? Deadly. You get that on your skin, you get that in your mouth, you accidentally drink something, anything like that. Deadly. So hardly any visible stuff comes up, but it is the most deadly, and this is the older brother in the story. This is us in any area of life, Plum Creek Church, where self-righteousness has gotten the best of us. And I don't want that for any of us because you know why? We miss the meal. And I've just tasted and seen just enough of dining with Jesus in the last 24 years. There's nothing better than the meal when he's there and when you're there. It's a sweet spot and I want that for all of you. And so there's this guy in the New Testament, if you're newer to church, uh, we'll, we'll talk about him a lot. We'll just call him usually Paul, but he's the Apostle Paul. The reason we talk about him so much is because he wrote so much. He wrote almost half of the New Testament. And so obviously we read his writings a lot. And Paul, just so you know, prior to being a Christ follower and a passionate Christ follower, he was a passionate persecutor of the church. Do you know what his trade was? A Pharisee. And so in Philippians chapter three, he gives this juxtaposition between his days as a Pharisee and his days now following Christ. Listen to what he says. This is Philippians 3, 1 through 9 in the message paraphrase. He says, and that's about it, friends. Just be glad in God. He goes, I don't mind repeating what I've written in earlier letters, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here it goes. Tune your hearts in, Plum Creek Church. This is so important what he says here. He says, steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark, no bite. All they're interested in, this is the mark of a Pharisee and all of us, all they're interested in is appearances. Knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. The real believers are the one the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. And then listen to this. This is a recovering Pharisee right here. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts. And we know it. Paul's thinking, because I already tried that. Even though we can list what many think are very impressive field day credentials, and that's about what he's going to do. He's about to pull out the field day ribbon and show everyone again, because he's proud of it anymore, to make a point. He says, you know my pedigree, legitimate birth, blue star, Paul, circumcised on the eighth day. Ouch, Paul. <laughs> An Israelite from not just any tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, right? Like, like one tribe's better than another. It was till Jesus showed up. Like one race is better than another. It was till Jesus. Like one country's better than another. And Paul's given his list that he used to get glory from and he used to get clout from and he used to gain some false sense of power and control from. I used to be from the tribe of Benjamin, the elite tribe, a strict and devout adherent to God's law. Boost, blue stall. Try again, Chad. Blue star, Paul. A fiery defender of the purity of my religion. Blue star, Paul. Even to the point of persecuting the church. Blue star, a meticulous observer in everything set down in God's law book. Blue star, Paul. This is Paul trying to tell us if you went to the Field Day Hall of Fame, you would see an incredibly large statue in my honor. Because I am the Field Day Hall of Famer. Right? We know what he thinks now. He's like, and I wish they'd burn that hall of fame down. Because listen to what he says. The very credentials that these people, like the older brother, 
are waving around as something special, Paul says, I'm now tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all things I once thought were so important are gone in my life. Whew, I've been there. Compared to the high privilege, though, of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. I dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ. In other words, you don't get both. Choose you this day who you will serve. So I could embrace Christ and even more importantly, be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. In 1994, uh, I read this article a few years ago in the Associated Press. In 1994, there was a group of farmers in the nation of India who were uh, in the manure farming industry. Dung, (laughs) as Paul just mentioned. And something bad for them happened that year. Uh, economically, the, the government in India chose to um, import in billions of dollars worth of manure from the Dutch. And as you can imagine, rightfully so, those farmers were furious, right? And so here's what they decided to do. They got trucks and trucks full of their best manure that they could, could cook up, however you do that. I don't want to talk about that. They put them in the trucks on pallets and they drove to parliament and they protested right outside the front of parliament for days. And the Associated Press said they all had the same signs that for days they marched around. And you know what they chanted with those signs? Our manure's better than their manure. 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 Our manure's better than their... You know the story we just read? The older brother? I don't think he realizes because he's just like those farmers, nervous and scared, still trying to control everything. He's just out in the backyard with his father going, why don't you throw a party for me? My manure is better than his manure. And father's probably thinking, in a lot of ways, I'll grant you that. Listen, uh, listen, bunch you in here, your manure is better than mine. I concede. Some of my manure in here is better than yours because I know some of you. (laughs) Adventures in missing the point. It's what Paul said still at the end of the day. Dung. Our only hope is a righteousness that can only come from the finished work of Jesus Christ, his sinless, innocent, divine blood shed on the cross for our sins. And it is enough. It makes you whole again. Your performance cannot make you whole again. It is a waste of energy your attempts to outdo the neighbor cannot make you whole again. Your attempts to try and get in good God, God's good standing by behaving well enough will never be enough because God doesn't reward the best behaviors. He rewards the best believers. Do you know how much faith it takes? It doesn't take me hardly any faith to try and behave. It just takes some white knuckle discipline. Do you know how much faith it takes for me to believe what God speaks over me is true? Do you know how much faith it takes for me to believe that even though there's still a bunch of Pharisee inside Chad Brugman, he'll come out and find that part of me and plead with it to come home for something better? This is the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. This isn't me saying don't do well at work because it doesn't matter anymore. It matters. 
you'll find some great joy in putting in a good day of work. This doesn't mean saying don't be excellent at your hobbies or your gifts or your talents. We bring glory to God when we do that. This is me just simply saying you don't have to express any of those things to be in good standing with God. What you have to continually do is keep bringing your heart more and more to God. Then you get to go out in the field when it's time to work. Then you get to go out into the field when it's time to accomplish some things with you and the creator. And instead of being slavery, it's a gift. And I want that for all of us. And the only way we're gonna have this in this lifetime, and listen, we're never gonna fully conquer it on this side of eternity, and that's okay. But the goal is that we're self-aware. The goal is that we care about that Pharisee in us that needs to go. The goal is that we are keenly aware that it will keep us from missing the meal that God so desperately wants you to experience even on this side of eternity. And so as we start to worship right now, here's what I'm gonna ask. God, would you do a holy pharisectomy in all of us so that we can walk out of these doors lighter and we can walk out of these doors freer. We can put the comparison traps down. We can put the earning and striving down and we can just start to walk in the rhythm of God's grace that he has paid the full price for us to walk in. No more striving, no more earning, putting that down and simply just saying, where do you want me to sit at the party? I'm just happy to be in the presence of the Father.